Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm doing okay. <laughs> I'm going to give sort of a caveat up front. We are recording this podcast on a Thursday morning. I am, after this podcast, going to write a weekly article about the topics covered in this podcast, which probably you will read first. And then this podcast will be released on Friday. And it may be a little weird because I might not reference things that I wrote about, but that's because we recorded the podcast first, even though you're listening to it later. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Well, good, because that's probably going to be one of the many confusing things that we get into in this discussion. So I also have a confession based on the feedback from last week. It's apparent that I need to rant more often. So I'm going to see if I can find something to rant about, but I don't think it's going to be the case this week. Well, it's like a chicken and egg question. Was it that people actually enjoyed the rant or they enjoyed the fact that someone was ranting about Facebook? Like which, which of us comes first? <laughs> well, maybe we'll test the theory this week. We'll see. <laughs> so we already did a podcast entitled A Podcast About Podcasts. Unfortunately, so we can't reuse that title, but we are going to talk about podcasts and not just talk about podcasts, but I think hopefully by the end of the show, we'll get more into some of the value chain and sort of modularity discussion and how that applies to aggregators versus direct consumer businesses. We've been touching on that a bit over the last couple of weeks, and I think it applies in this case. But before we get sort of super confusing and get people lost, maybe we should dive into the details of what's been going on. Yeah, it's uh, Spotify had some interesting news the past couple of days, didn't they? They certainly did. This is a situation where there's always the question of writing about something, like something happens, do I want to write about it immediately or should I wait? And in this case, there was an announcement over the weekend that Spotify was buying Gimlet Media for something like $230 million, which is a pretty eye-opening price. Gimlet Media is a podcast studio that produces a number of popular shows. I think the most popular one is called Reply All. They're pretty large. They have a staff of 100. I think they have around 20-some shows. And it's not just original podcast production. They're also getting slightly into video, although I think that's a very small business. And they also have sort of a branded content arm, which is like native advertising for podcasts, sort of thing, like doing podcasts on the behalf of brands. Think about like the original sort of BuzzFeed model back in the day. You know, so Spotify acquired them. And obviously, you know, I was very tempted to write about it right away. This is a space that I'm very interested in. This is interesting on all sorts of levels, but it wasn't like officially confirmed. And plus Spotify's earnings were going to be on Wednesday. So I'm like, you know, I think maybe I should wait just to be safe. And I'm glad I did because not only did their earnings come out, but it turns out they're acquiring two podcast companies. The other one is Anchor. Anchor's sort of premise is it should be super easy to get started with podcasting. And you can record a podcast like right on your phone and then you can upload it and it can all be taken care of. They also have just a general hosting business. Like if we wanted to, we could stick Exponent on Anchor's hosting. So two big acquisitions, clearly a significant move into this space. And now hopefully the water has settled enough that we can safely talk about it, even if we're talking about it in a slightly out of order way. Yeah, it's so interesting because these podcast companies seem to be at completely opposite ends of the spectrum. It's one thing to start to acquire very popular content. And this is a playbook that shouldn't be too unfamiliar to our listeners, given the conversation that we had around Netflix a couple of weeks back. But at the other end of the spectrum, making it easy for folks who are just starting out, like that sounds like it's long tail type content. And how that fits together for an audio subscription business, I think this is going to make for a fascinating conversation. Absolutely. And I want to sort of double down on that point because I think there's a headline here, which is Spotify gets majorly into podcasting, which is a true headline. But it's really hard to sort of analyze what's going on unless you understand the fact that, to your point, these two companies are completely different. Like Anchor as far as I know, does not have any massively popular podcasts that you could sort of make exclusive to Spotify and that would drive Spotify subscriptions. I mean, I'm sure the hope is to get there and we can talk about it in a moment. But for now, you know, they like to talk about, oh, we had 50% of all new podcasts on iTunes in the last six months, I think is one of their talking points, which to be clear, it's not 50% of all podcasts. It's all the new podcasts that were on iTunes came from Anchor. And it makes sense that that's a metric they would sort of highlight because it fits sort of the idea that anyone can podcast, you know what I mean? And anyone can upload something that's very, very different than Joe Schmo over here with his phone recording something versus a Gimlet Media, which is this super high-end production, highly produced shows that cost a good deal of money to produce and have very large mass market audiences and are to date had a business model of sort of getting large mass market brands to sponsor them. 
The Gimlet one was the one that immediately made a lot of sense for me. Spotify is reliant on these record labels where they are receiving the songs that people want and those labels are also giving them to Apple, iTunes and anyone else who's willing to pay for them. And it's hard to differentiate your product as a result of that. So I can see a world in which Spotify is looking around and seeing Netflix's success with original shows driving people to start to subscribe because they can't get this content that they really like anywhere else. It's like, okay, I'll start and now I'll stay here. But the other end of the spectrum is super interesting. Yeah, I agree. And this is why I was glad I waited because that was one of those moves where it's almost like almost too obvious in some respects, right? You can write about, yeah, they're sort of get differentiated content. And this isn't the first time they've done this in terms of podcasts specifically. Like they have a exclusive with like Amy Schumer and they have an exclusive with Jamel Hill, the former sort of ESPN host, to have podcasts that are only on Spotify And not just that, but in the context of music, they've been sort of working towards having a way that independent artists could upload their music directly to Spotify without having to go through a label, whether that be with the major labels, whether it be sort of the collection of of independent labels, all of which makes sort of perfect sense. I mean, we've talked about Spotify several times, but it's very, very interesting, the question of Spotify and sort of aggregation. Because on one hand, they do have that sort of direct connection with consumers, you know, which is certainly a characteristic of an aggregator. But sort of the problem for Spotify has always been on the supply side, which is the ability to sort of modularize their supply to the extent that they can extract most of the value in a value chain. And and so that's what we see happens, whether it be Facebook, whether it be Netflix, where they're capturing the majority of the value. And, And Netflix is a useful comparable here in that Netflix when they acquire shows and whether they acquire their shows as second run shows, they're basically, you know, the show that's already shown, whether they're doing a hybrid deal, which they're doing more and more where it's acquiring second run rights in one country and first run rights internationally, or they have like complete first run rights and they own the entire thing. And whether they're dealing with channels or whether they're dealing with studios directly or dealing with independent producers, in all cases, Netflix owns it. And it's the key that Netflix owns the content that makes their model from a financial perspective that lets them extract that value because then however much they charge consumers is not connected to what they pay out. And so they have a sort of arbitrage position where they acquire content for a certain amount of money, then they extract money from consumers and the amount that they extract from consumers is not necessarily linked to the amount they pay out. It's just like a SaaS business, right? Or any of these tech businesses where there's high fixed costs. And then if you can monetize it a bunch, then you take home all the money and then it drives towards you getting scale. Right, exactly. I mean, so Netflix pays $100 million for friends. They're paying $100 million to friends, whether one person watches it or whether like 100 million people watch it. Like it's really important that that connection is broken. And the problem for Spotify is that connection is not broken because Spotify pays a percentage of revenue to the labels, which means the more people use Spotify, the more Spotify's costs increase. Their content costs, at least when it comes to you know, most popular music, is a marginal cost. It's not a fixed cost. They're They're not paying for it once and then they're free to monetize it to the extent they want to, which is the case with Netflix. They pay for it according to how much they collect. It's a very tough spot to be in that they do have some aggregator type features, but they don't have aggregator type profits because they have that linkage between the supply side and the consumer side. If you think about it, in some respects, Spotify is a conduit for the record labels to form a direct connection with end users. Right. And so Spotify is clearly trying to get out of this situation and therefore like buying into original content on podcasts is like their way of doing it. They haven't been able to do it with music. And if they move towards music, I think the fear that they have is that they upset the record labels and the labels end up cutting off the key supply, the thing that causes most people to subscribe. And so they're looking at podcasts, which is an adjacent market. This again, just drives home at how as much as Spotify tries to replicate Netflix's model, it's never quite as good, partly because of the content and the fact that the labels have this differentiated content that's so important for Spotify to get. But even if you think about the way that people listen to music and the importance of the back catalog or the way that people watch TV shows and movies, and yeah, there's a bias towards new stuff, but that back catalog is great. Podcasts aren't quite the same. Podcast people definitely have a preference towards newer content. And it's not to say that someone won't go back and listen to the first season of Serial, but I personally feel- 
or exponent. It does happen. They get the occasional tweet, but I definitely feel like people have a recency preference and that undercuts this notion of you buy this content, which Netflix does, and it's sort of evergreen and it helps keep people on and it keeps adding up. And this is part of the reason why I think Netflix doesn't get into sports because it goes stale very quickly. And I think podcasts in a certain sense are more like sports in this regard in that they go stale relatively quickly. That was a problematically insightful comment by you because there's like 14 things that I want to respond to. So so I think we can take it on multiple levels. So start with Spotify sort of and podcasts relative to sort of the record labels. I mean, I think there's an aspect where Spotify is sort of stuck with the record labels. You know, in, in you know, we've debated to what extent can they play chicken with the labels? Like, could the labels really afford to cut Spotify off? And certainly, you know, I think there will be pushes around the edges of like how much is shared, how much of label marketing budgets ends up going back to Spotify. So it's kind of like the money does like a circle in exchange for Spotify being able to promote music, which I think is a real value that Spotify has. I mean, how much is it worth to be promoted by Spotify? It's massive. There's always been these sort of pay-to-play marketing budgets when it comes to radio. I think that's absolutely something that could work out as far as Spotify goes. But at the end of the day, this sort of fundamental structure of the value chain where the labels and Spotify are co-joined in a way, it's almost like the way that distributors like Comcast, like cable distributors were joined with, you know, networks like Disney's networks. And like, there was a push and pull about like, we're clearly extracting a lot of money from the customer. The real debate is how do we split that up? That's kind of like what's happening here in some respects, right? Yeah. That's a good analogy. Well, it's not a perfect analogy because Comcast would still sort of geographic exclusivity. So that probably gave them a little more power. Whereas because of the internet, Spotify doesn't have geographic exclusivity. So they're competing against Apple Music, for example, which means the negotiating position of the labels is stronger relative to Spotify than Disney is, say, relative to Comcast, for example. But I think at sort of a high level, this idea that there's this part of the value chain that kind of makes sense to be integrated, but it's actually split into two. And there's just a push and pull about that. That is, I think, the best way to think about and understand Spotify relative to the music labels. Yeah, I'd also say that there's more concentration in the labels, which makes it harder for Spotify and Apple Music to get in an argument and cut it off. Like you think about when Comcast or some cable channel really gets in a fight with one of the content producers, it can sometimes end up in a world where the cable is like, sorry, we couldn't reach an agreement, the content's not available, and that's not ideal for them. But there was still enough diversity of channels that they could afford to do it. That's definitely not the case when there are really three labels and you lose a third of the music. Right. And what actually happened in the cable industry over time was more and more consolidation on the sort of channel side to sort of counteract this effect, because it actually, you know, towards today, there's only really like four or five cable networks that matter. And of those TNT or Turner and Disney are by far the most powerful. And that's why you saw, for example, I we're kind of going down a rat hole, but when they started like sling TV started like the idea of getting the cable bundle over the internet, what were the two that were on there? It was Disney and TNT. And you had all the like random Disney channels, like maker TV or something like that. Why? Because they had created their own sort of bundle within the bundle to increase their negotiating leverage with distributors originally to negotiate with folks like Comcast, but they could leverage that against new entrants as well. Anyhow, the labels have like perfected that. Like there's three labels. <laughs> and if you lose any one of them, your music service is not viable. It's screwed. Right. And it's accentuated by the geographic point. Like you can switch to Apple Music anywhere in the world. Whereas changing from Comcast and going to get like a satellite dish, like that's it's a, hard. It's hard, right? And so the relative power of the labels is really, really strong, I think, compared to basically any other industry. Yeah, makes total sense. So to bring in your point about the having exclusives and stuff that's unique to Spotify, that solves a few problems for them. So one, it gives them a point of differentiation to your point relative to, say, Apple Music. And so it helps them in that competitive space. And the more that they're differentiated from Apple Music, it also flows back into the more sort of negotiating leverage they have relative to the labels. Now, are a couple of Gimlet shows going to let them get a better rate from the labels? Maybe, maybe not. But these are early days. You can see in the long run, 
it does shift the dynamics slightly. The other thing is it also changes their cost structure because now some component of their payout from customers, Spotify is now like a label, right? Now there's like four entities. There's more labels than just the three, but we'll stick with just the three for simplicity purposes. Uh, We should say four, like Merlin is kind of like the big independent one. So there's four labels and then there's Spotify and Spotify to the extent that their content is accruing plays, the more that they're sort of paying themselves, right? They're now slotting themselves in with the other labels. And you mentioned that by doing it with podcasts, it's less competitive to the labels. I think that's exactly right. It's a way to get into that pie to sort of pay themselves out of their own pie without upsetting the other members of that pie. And that payout is coming onto fixed cost content, which means they have more leverage on that content than they do with marginal cost content. Again, makes total sense. Good, because I was getting a little in the weeds there, but hopefully it's following. We'll get more into the implications for podcasts specifically, but to your point about Spotify and the sort of staleness of podcasts, it's a really interesting one. I mean, people subscribe to Spotify today by and large because they want access to music and you get access to all music. And I've certainly written about it. I can't remember what we've talked about, but this idea that the reason why the music industry is doing so well, and they're doing incredibly well, their revenues are growing significantly every year and they are on pace to, in the next decade or less, to surpass like their high point of CDs, which if you told someone that 10 years ago, would kind of blow their minds. But the reason is because they are a business that is really, and Spotify dragged them into this kicking and screaming, to be clear, but that's organized around internet assumptions. They are working with the internet. And what's the problem with digital goods on the internet is that digital goods are worthless because they can be duplicated endlessly. If I have a music file and I give that music file to you, I still have the music file and now you have the music file too. Whereas if it's a CD, I've given you a CD. Now I don't have the CD. Like it's a rivalrous good, which means if you use it, I can't use it. Whereas digital goods, they're non rivalish which means we can all use it and none of us are injured in the process. And what that means as far as monetizing is like that you can't monetize that like just in a vacuum. And so the music industry was fighting against this for ages, you know, trying to stop piracy and stop Napster and all the sort of efforts they were going on. Whereas the model today embraces that fact. Like, okay, if it doesn't cost anything for everyone to get music from everywhere, let's just give them all the music. And what they're actually selling is convenience. Instead of sort of scouting around the dark corners of the internet to get the song you wanted, just pay $10 a month and it's all right there in front of you. Yeah. And some aspect of that people are definitely paying for to get the latest songs, but there's also an aspect of it. And it would be interesting to understand the usage, but there's some aspect of it where people want to listen to music from the thirties or people want to listen to the sixties or people want to listen to the eighties. It's going back into the back catalog. And that value of the back catalog is really valuable for the labels. That's right. Nineties alternative forever. Can I get, can I, can I get an a, huh? <laughs> Yeah. So, so we just dated ourselves really badly. Hey, you know what? I embrace the dating. <laughs> yeah. So I think the question that you're driving at, though, is there's an obvious parallel between music and podcasts in that they're both audio. I mean, like that to just to sort of take the obvious point. But to what extent is Spotify able to sort of leverage their position and music into a sort of dominant position in podcasts. I mean, we can see the benefits to Spotify's business, a better competitive position relative to Apple Music and other music providers, and taking a greater part of the pie on a more leveraged basis relative to the labels. But then the big picture is sort of, is this going to work? I mean, is it enough that you listen to music in one place, so you'll want to listen to podcasts in that same place? Yeah. And if you're already in Apple Music, if you can no longer download your favorite Gimlet podcast, Reply All, is that going to be enough incentive for you to flip? Is this content going to be valuable enough to actually start to drive people's behaviors? And also, there is some extent to which you pay for it and it's evergreen in the same way the labels have it, in the same way Netflix has it. I think this is less so. I mean, I understand the shift of why they're doing it, but is it going to be akin to what Netflix has been able to do? I'm just not sure. Yeah, and that's why I think it's interesting. Like all this discussion made perfect sense in the context of just acquiring Gimlet, right? And I think their plans for Gimlet are not just the Gimlet shows. I think they view Gimlet as a sort of overall management company for taking on a whole host of exclusive podcasts. If they're only buying 25 shows for 230 million, I don't think they're doing it right. 230 million is still kind of blows my mind, but neither here nor there. I think this all though makes more sense in the context of the anchor acquisition as well. 
I think Spotify knows better than anyone sort of the fundamental limitations of their sort of music business. I mean, yes, they can nibble around the edges and sort of bring independent artists on directly. The real challenge, though, is that the moment a song becomes popular or an artist becomes popular and they're on a major label, the back catalog is instantly better, right? A new song instantly becomes part of the back catalog, which sort of increases the label's relative negotiating position. If you could stop right now where all artists going forward would be on Spotify, then sure, over the long run, they can wear down sort of the major label's sort of competitive position. But the reality is the major label's competitive position keeps getting stronger over time. Like every second that it's not interrupted, the more difficult that interruption sort of becomes because you know new content becomes back catalog the moment it's played. That's so well articulated. It's such a good point. And again, you know, we mentioned things like maybe they can capture more of the marketing budgets along those lines, but you're sort of like married to these guys, right? And you're, you're not going anywhere. And so I can definitely understand the corporate imperative to move into this new space. But here's the thing about podcasting. Podcasting is so diversified. It's such a wild west area. We've talked about this in the past. Like the only company that is sort of remotely in a place to consolidate it and make it into a more centralized sort of area. And again, like podcasting is very much the web way back in the day where, you know, there is websites everywhere and they're kind of sprawled out. And what was the centralizing function? Well, first was sort of Google because you could actually find the websites. And then it was Facebook where a lot of the sort of the content production really moved to and Twitter for a certain sort of probably a lot of bloggers actually ended up on Twitter more than Facebook. But this idea that there was a centralizing force, like the company that's there is Apple. And Apple is there because they set up iTunes ages ago. And Apple Podcasts is by far the most listened to player. And it's really interesting. They've really shown no appetite to sort of move in this space, which is really surprising given sort of the focus on services. Like to me, this seems like a sort of a clear opportunity. And now you have Spotify coming in and saying, well, there's an opportunity for centralization. Again, we can debate whether that is going to work, but you have a field with lots of interesting and good stuff everywhere. And there's lots of problems to be solved. It's not very easy to discover stuff. It's not very easy to sort of like subscribe to stuff. And it's really hard to monetize. And it's definitely a situation where you can see the potential of the whole being greater than the sum of the parts. If you have all this stuff together, like your ability to monetize the whole, as opposed to monetizing granularly on a sort of like an atomic level is massively higher. I mean, think about this in the context of advertising when it came to blogs versus Facebook. Maybe back in the day, you could throw up an advertisement on your blog, but it's sort of like deal with that on a sort of like no, no advertiser is going to go on like a site by site basis unless you're a massive site, you know, like the New York Times or something and, and do a one off advertising deal. So what came along? Well, you had sort of ad networks were sort of the first stage, which is okay, now advertisers go to one place and the ad network will take the sort of the task of distributing those ads across a sort of wide disparate array of sites. But the sort of the end game was actually, let's bring not just the advertisers, but also sort of the readers and then bring on the suppliers onto a single centralized platform like Facebook. And then we'll stick the ads right there and sell them directly. And you had this sort of like, I've referenced this sort of circling the toilet before. And perhaps in the case of Facebook, our audience will particularly like that analogy. But you had this idea where these things three factors of it being where more of the readers were, where you could have better information and targeting and just a better experience for advertisers. And by experience, I mean, it's so much easier to deal with one entity than the multiple entities. Remember the ROI of an advertisement is not just the return, but it's also how much you have to invest in getting on there. And that draws on the suppliers where you go and write stuff on Facebook because it's easier. And also that's where readers are going to be. If you want people to to see what you have to say, you're not going to make any money on it. That's sort of a, a separate issue with Facebook and Buzzfeed. And one we can, perhaps we can touch on the article I wrote in last week, but you can see how this dynamic played out. And I can certainly see from Spotify, perspective, viewing this space, this podcasting space and saying, you know, someone needs to come in and centralize it. One thing we can do is we can think about the top end and having exclusive content and see how that plays to our business. But this is where I think the anchor piece is super important. We're going to take a complete view of this. We're going to approach this from every single possible perspective and try to get into all parts of sort of the podcast value chain, broadly speaking, because the more that we're doing all of it, the more we can get that swirl towards the center happening. 
The Gimlet part was the part that immediately made sense to me. And I think people immediately understand, get exclusives, get people on the platform, turn it off everywhere else. Like I got the business notion of that. The anchor thing is a little bit less obvious. The thing about it is though, when you dig into the Gimlet thing for the reasons we talked about before, I'm a little bit more bearish about what they're doing there. As you dig into this anchor, which makes initially a little less sense, but as you dig into it, I think that's the one I'm a little bit more bullish on because of your point that you just made right then about the advertisers. You make it easy for podcast producers to come on the platform. You are a centralized place then where advertisers can then go and pick from a smorgasbord of shows and insert ads. Spotify through Anchor deals with payment to the podcast producer. So it makes it super simple. So they're not going to require, at least from the comments that I saw, they don't have the expectation that all the content that they're then creating is going to become Spotify exclusive. So I suspect that many of those podcasts, some will get placed on Spotify and I'm sure Anchor will make it very easy to put it on Spotify, but some will go on to iTunes and all the usual suspects. I suspect though that because Spotify has some percentage of data looking at users and what they're playing in the Spotify player and the abandon rate, and it won't be 100% of listeners, but it's probably enough to be representative, they can then also expose that data to advertisers as well, which makes it more attractive for advertisers again, because you think back to the last time we were talking about podcasting, one of the complaints was Apple doesn't provide enough data. Its privacy focus causes it to just want to let this ecosystem flourish and not interfere with it too much. There's another way I think the data could work too. If you sort of sketch this out in the long run, if Anchor ends up being a place where new podcasts start, then Spotify will have visibility into podcasts that are taking off. And so they could have a multi-part model where, yes, they build sort of an ad network for podcasts generally, and they have these tools to come on, but then also they can pluck out podcasts and put them on the exclusive layer within podcasts. And so they have visibility into up-and-comers and they're much cheaper to acquire an up-and-comer than it is to pay a million dollars for a podcast today or whatever they're paying for Gimlet. And so I think there's a two-part method. Gimlet is all about the exclusive high-end podcasts. Anchor is a way to potentially get a cut of the advertising of podcasting generally by building a sort of an advertising, I think, vehicle. And the competition here is a company called Midroll, which we've talked about previously, but also to get visibility into which podcasts are worth promoting, if that makes sense. Uh, It makes total sense. It will be interesting to see whether the podcast dynamic matches the same as the show dynamic, whether you can get the same buzz around podcasts that are young and then become exclusive on Spotify. And that causes people to then want to subscribe more to Spotify as it kind of you've seen with recent shows and movies on Netflix. It'll be interesting to watch. I think the point that you just made, though, spot on. I guess there's a broader point, though, that as I read about this news that I started to reflect upon, if we think about the way that we've talked about the web and how in the early days of the web, because it was open and all the problems you described from an advertiser perspective are still there, but it enabled a company like Google to come along and crawl the web because it was all open standards. It was all available. And then Google organized all the world's information, but the problems in a certain sense and insights around what users wanted to do on the web and how they interacted, Facebook started up. And instead of it being an open platform, it created a closed platform where they started to accrue many of those benefits internally. And the nature of it then being closed enabled it to be more attractive to advertisers, which brought more people on and so on and so forth, because they got more money to reinvest and so on and so forth. I wonder if we're starting to see a similar inflection point around podcasts. I remember when we chatted about it last time, everyone was complaining, you know, Apple didn't provide data to podcasts. And you made a fantastic point is like, just be careful what you wish for. You get people coming in and playing with this, like you lose all the benefits of it being an open ecosystem. Like it's all XML files and whatever in the background. And I read this news and I started to wonder whether the equivalent type thing where Apple has kind of been the beneficiary of the podcast ecosystem being open in the same way that Google was the beneficiary of the web being open. Facebook came along and kind of changed that and became the fast growing area on the web. And I wonder whether Spotify is now going to be the same for podcasts. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the goal. I mean, to the extent they are successful, 
there's benefits to centralization up and down the stack in the sort of quote unquote open ecosystem. Well, if they can be a centralized ad seller, think about like Google AdSense, you know, for websites, that's certainly a business that they could potentially be in. But then also to bring them onto Spotify directly where they can monetize them and sort of get into all layers and get into all layers in a way that not just makes money all layers, but also, you know, sort of feeds the layers further down the funnel or further up the chain or however you, whatever sort of analogy you want to use. We say about exponents, we get the question all the time, why aren't we on Spotify? Well, you know, podcasts are wide open. If Spotify wanted to just have a directory and allow you to subscribe to any podcast, Exponent could be on Spotify. The reason Exponent is not on Spotify is because Spotify is not an open platform for podcasts. To the extent that we care about being open or controlling our own destiny is the extent that why are we on Apple Podcasts? Because Apple Podcasts is leveraging sort of the openness of podcasts. And so you can go there and you subscribe. And it's sort of self-evident. The fact that we're not on Spotify has been a signal for a while that Spotify podcasts are not an open platform. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it's the same reason why you run Stratechery through email and the web as opposed to on Facebook and LinkedIn, right? Right. It's kind of interesting. It's like, if you want to understand why I'm not on Spotify, like go back and read everything that I've written because, <laughs> sorry, that's a little snarky, but yeah, my entire sort of business model and thinking about what I do. And yes, I make money on the website, not necessarily on podcasts per se, but the general principle of wanting to control my own destiny and not wanting to be in a position where I'm sort of in hoc to these aggregators or wannabe aggregators is super important to me. And being a content producer, you need to make those sorts of choices. And and I think that the challenge, what Netflix found out in terms of content and what I think Spotify will probably find out as well is there's a lot of people that they just want to make content, you know? And if someone comes along and offers them a check to do what they want to do and love to do, they're going to take it. And it's a mismatch in sort of like what people want or expect. And this is why I do think Netflix is an aggregator and that the means of aggregation is money does not change the underlying sort of dynamics. Like the relative negotiating position and desires of suppliers are different and more short term than the sort of overall aggregator, like Netflix's case. Like they're thinking about reaching a worldwide audience. They're thinking about the subscribers that we'll have in the future. They're thinking about having evergreen content that reduces their relative customer acquisition costs over time. And their mindset means the value they derive for every dollar they pay to suppliers is much greater than suppliers, but suppliers from their perspective, they don't have those long-term views because they're just a supplier wanting to make their show, wanting to make their movie. Just ask BuzzFeed, like abdicate the relationship with your customer at your own peril, because once you do that, you are entirely at the mercy of those platforms and how they decide to editorialize you. Like Stratechery can email customers directly at the point at which you end up on the platform Spotify owns that relationship with the customers and they can do what they want with it and you are completely at their mercy right because the moment that you sort of get hooked on that the IV of that money flowing in <laughs> right you're kind of yeah it's that, hard that to take it out. <laughs> yeah BuzzFeed is interesting because I think BuzzFeed knew these realities and sort of tried to lean into it and sort of like Yes, we could do direct consumer, but we believe in being sort of a widely available content and not you know, both our news and our entertainment. And we want to reach as many people as possible. And being in the middle is almost worse than anything, right? I thought it made a lot of sense and was a valid sort of path to pursue to sort of lean into Facebook and say, oh, wait, we'll do instant articles right away. And, we're, and we trust that you're really good at selling ads. So let's make this a mutually beneficial relationship. The reality that I think they ran into is when it comes to sort of the modularization of supply, Facebook is the most extreme example of all. I mean, I've used this example before, but the idea you can go to your newsfeed and a like years long, like investigative report from like the New York times or ProPublica or whatever is given the exact same level of prominence in view as like pictures of your niece. We talk about BATNA, like the best alternative to negotiated agreement. Like Facebook's BATNA is overwhelming because any content providers, like I'm not going to give you my content, Facebook. Facebook's like, fine. We have like literally oodles and oodles and oodles of user generated content. We would never have a problem filling our feed. I mean, would we like to have that content? Sure. But if we don't, we have so many possible sort of replacements, they don't need to share anything. Now, Netflix does not have that level of power and sort of modularity of their supply. Like, like no one's putting their content on Netflix for free, which is where I think, for example, YouTube is very interesting to think about as an alternative and a competitor for Netflix. YouTube, they have the bat of user-generated content that they can leverage against any potential suppliers that want more. And frankly, I think one of the smartest things YouTube has done strategically is YouTube has done a pretty good job of helping the 
people on their platform monetize, I think has shown more sort of long-term thinking than Facebook has. I think Facebook would be better if they would be a little more generous with like people who are actually producing great, great content for Facebook. And, you know, I've talked about the fact, but Buzzfeed stuff, Buzzfeed kind of unfairly, I think got lumped in with a lot of like the Buzzfeed imitators that were really doing absolute crap. And the reality is it would have been better for Facebook to have more Buzzfeed and less of the imitators, but their model was so extreme that basically everyone got thrown in the same trash can with all the other content on Facebook. Yeah. I mean, the reason being is because they can fundamentally. And right, exactly. About, right. And that was, that was what I missed. That's exactly right. The nature of Facebook, which is like as a user, oh, if you don't see that ProPublica article or that New York Times article, the way that people just trust that newsfeed is like, oh, well, Facebook's surfacing for me. And it's not that they think about this explicitly, but implicitly, I'm just being surfaced the content that is most interesting to me. And if that happens to be videos of your niece or pictures of your niece or whatever, then people are like, okay, great. And if it declines long term, then they start to have an engagement problem, but they have so much content that it's not a concern. YouTube, on the other hand, does need to have engaging videos. A big part of it, and you hear of people disappearing down the rabbit hole of the YouTube algorithm, it needs good content. They are more dependent on their content creators to keep their users engaged. And so it follows that they are going to be more careful about the way that they then make sure those creators are monetized. But I think there's an opportunity here. We've talked about this in a bunch of episodes to zoom out and talk about the integration and modularity more generally, because I know we've got a bunch of questions and it's, it's something that's relevant for the Spotify conversation. It's for the Netflix conversation, for the Facebook conversation. You're just seeing this integration and modularity shift in so many different businesses and understanding the concepts, both how it affects companies, but also how it affects value chains, I think is critical to understanding what's going on and particularly the case for aggregators as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, you could start with Facebook as a good example because they have all the consumers, one, two, those consumers just kind of go onto the platform blindly. Like to your point, I mean, I don't think people are like trusting Facebook explicitly, which is exactly what you said. It's more they're, you know, standing at the bus stop and they're looking to waste time. And in that sort of mindset and point of view, if you're in a wasting time point of view, yeah, you're going to be turned off as stuff is like, actively bad. And yeah, you'll get annoyed if you realize you missed something. And so Facebook needs to make sure they're surfacing like the user generated content that people do actually really want to see. But by and large, it's all about delivering sort of a good enough experience that you wasted time effectively. You know what I mean? And in that context, the integration between Facebook and the user and sort of the display of content, the distribution of content is so total that suppliers are completely and utterly marginalized. Like no one goes to Facebook to get to a particular piece of content. No one goes to Facebook to get that BuzzFeed article. No one goes to Facebook to get that New York Times article. If they wanted to get the New York Times article, they would go to the New York Times. If they wanted the BuzzFeed article, they would go to BuzzFeed. And and so that extremity of the modularization, I think I underappreciated. Yes, Facebook could have a better long-term view and see they could pay out, but really there's zero incentives to do it. Absolutely none. And there's tall kinds of incentives to keep sort of driving the way that they were going. And this is where I think the YouTube comparison is interesting. I think you just made a really, really good point, which is people waste all kinds of time on YouTube, but YouTube, I think, is inherently, unlike Facebook, less of sort of a destination app where you just like, how many people just open YouTube and start watching videos? Like, usually you go to a specific video and that's when you go down the rabbit hole, right? So you have the algorithmic sort of increasing engagement, making you view more and more ads. But what actually triggers that? Where people just open Facebook, whereas YouTube, and this is where I think the content creators, I think this is what you're saying. So I'm just kind of restating it. The content creators, they post a new video, you get a notification on YouTube or you get an email saying, so so post a new video and boom, you open the YouTube app to view that video. And oh, now you're in YouTube and you'll start watching other videos and they can sort of work their magic. And so that makes those people that prompt you to open the app relatively more valuable to YouTube. Whereas Facebook, no content supplier is prompting you to open Facebook. You open Facebook just because you open Facebook. Right, exactly. Yeah, I think that's a very good articulation of it. But I think that starts to get to the point, whereas there is some suppliers to YouTube that still retain some degree of differentiation. They're not completely modularized. And so because their modulation is slightly less, 
more of the value in the value chain goes to those suppliers, right? Whereas relative to Facebook, the modulation is total. So zero money basically flows to suppliers. This is sort of the point. The degree to which you are modularized is sort of inversely proportional to the amount of value derived from the value chain. If you're completely not modularized, you're going to be at zero. And think about this in the context of like a supply chain. If you're competing to supply components for a computer or a phone or whatever it might be, if you have other competitors that produce the exact same part you do for the exact same amount of money or for the exact same costs, like you're going to have zero profits. You will be competed down to zero because that's just the way it works. You have to have some advantage, whether you have a different point of differentiation or you have a superior cost structure that will allow you to sort of make money. There's a point here that I want to tease out. I'm listening to you and you're saying modularization, but the description that I'm hearing is almost commoditization. And I think there's an important distinction between the two. That's true. I mean, when you modularize, you basically are breaking up an integration into its like component pieces. But I think that's sort of the first step to commoditization. Like as long as you have an integrated position in a value chain, you can't be commoditized by virtue of the fact that you're generating a whole that's greater than like two parts, right? You have part A, part B, you integrate them together. And the value of that is greater than part A and part B individually. Well, once you come in, if someone else like disrupts your value chain so that part A and part B gets split out, say you can start buying part A and part B from separate companies and get the same sort of functionality that you provide when you're integrated. Well, one, if you're going to compete effectively because you do bear certain costs by being integrated, you are probably going to have to modulize yourself. You're going to start selling A and B separately. Maybe your A component is better relative to the competition. Your B is sort of weaker. So you get modularized, which means your pieces get broken up. And once your pieces are broken up, then it's sort of a race to the bottom of commodification. So modularization is sort of the first step to being commodified. And you're right. It's good to call me out because I was conflating the two, but I think there is a progression. Whereas Facebook, as an example, broke apart sort of the integrated bundle of, say, the New York Times, use an example, where you have all the different parts of it all together into one piece. It's broken down into just the individual article. So now it's competing on being an individual article versus the other individual articles on the web. And now you put it into Facebook where that article is competing with pictures, the proverbial pictures of my niece, my poor niece, she has no idea. And now it's being commoditized, but it's being commoditized because the Facebook timeline is not showing newyorktimes.com versus pictures of my niece. It's showing one particular piece of newyorktimes.com, an atomic piece of newyorktimes.com versus my niece. And so it's a two-part process. Yeah. I mean, the conversation where this really got driven home to me and I thought was perhaps most interesting was in looking at Netflix and comparing it to the previous world of the channels and the cable and how those guys were integrated and how Netflix came along and it leveraged an alternative mechanism to the cable bundle like over the internet and then integrated down and owned that consumer relationship. And like you said, they were the channels and the cable were kind of integrated. They weren't integrated from the sense that they were the one company, but they were going to market almost as one. And the fight was where the line was drawn and who got the value. And Netflix completely broke that apart. And then they owned the customer relationship. And that then caused the channels to effectively commoditize to try to get their content onto Netflix to reach the consumers because they had no other way of getting there. Well, but no, you now I get to do the same question to you. They first modularized, which means that they broke into not just a, and this has been happening in part because this integration is center, the modularization of content has been happening for a while. It used to be that studios own the entire thing top to bottom. They own distribution. They own the actual stars. Like if you're the star, you can only work for one studio all the way down to they own movie theaters. Like the movie theaters got broken up because of the Supreme Court decision. But a big driver was because that point of integration was with distribution, with the Comcast and Charters of the world and whatnot. What happened on the backside is this, I mean, the stars broke out a long time ago, but also like individual shows started to break out. Studios started to break out apart from channels. So you would have like 21st Century Fox Studio would create shows that were shown both on the Fox channel and also on sort of the Disney channels, for example. And so that breakup's been happening for a while, which was to Netflix's benefit because they came in and they could start negotiating not simply with sort of the channels and buying their back catalog, but they could start negotiating with studios directly and so you set them in competition against each other in some respects. And then Netflix has driven that even further where now they're negotiating with like producers directly and they have a flexibility in their model
model that we talked about a couple of weeks ago where they can accommodate buying second run shows from studios and they can accommodate buying first run shows from individual producers and they can accommodate like hybrid models that I think I'm repeating myself. I talked about this earlier, but it's because of where they are in the value chain. They can drive modularization and then that drives further sort of commodification as sort of a second part. You, I think this is an interesting way to tie back to Spotify, which is one of the challenges in the podcast market is the degree to which it's utterly fragmented, but that also is a real opportunity to be the centralized player because you can kind of skip over the set. It's hard to go into a market versus integrated players. If you're in the right place in the value chain, you can drive them apart, but it takes time, right? If they're already driven apart and already sort of scattered to the winds, it becomes a lot easier to sort of pick up the pieces. Yeah, you know what's coming to mind as you say that, thinking about app developers in mobile, like the mobile ecosystem for applications was just a complete shit show for one of a better word before Apple came along with the app store and they had the consumer relationship because people love the devices. And then they just created this piece where modular developers could then plug into it. And effectively you had this explosion of apps effectively Apple modularized the development and became the central choke point with the app store that allowed the developers to then reach the consumers, but only by going through Apple. That's exactly right. And this is an important point. If you think about it too shortly, there's a weird sort of paradox in that we talk about how for suppliers, it's bad to be on the aggregators. But then we also talk about suppliers come on the aggregators of their own sort of volition. And I think the App Store is a great example of what we're talking about. Like the App Store has produced tons of money for developers and has been super beneficial and has grown an entire market where there really wasn't one before by virtue of the centralization, making it easy and connecting consumers and developers. But the upside was fundamentally sort of limited by developers for two reasons. One, they were completely intermediated by Apple and that Apple continued to sort of own that consumer relationship. So it was much more difficult to example, to drive consumers to upgrade. For example, if you want to do upgrades, you had to make a completely different app and try to communicate to users to go to the app store and download a different app and jumping through all these hoops instead of just saying, oh, there's a new version, click this button and pay $5 and you get a new version. So that's number one. But then number two, the degree of competition that Apple engendered in the app space meant that profits are driven down to zero because you have great apps competing as other great apps for the same customers. And the only lever they have in the market is basically to have a lower price. And that's why apps are so cheap and developers, oh, aren't there higher prices? Well, there aren't higher prices, not because of Apple's 30%. And there aren't higher prices because there's basically sort of infinite competition. And that's the sort of commodification that follows from the modularization. And then the ones that really tend to win in that app environment are ones that then use the app to integrate in somewhere else, like thinking like about- Like a Netflix ne- or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. They took the words right out of my mouth. On the subject of Netflix, though, I want to come back to this because Netflix and Disney was a topic we talked about a couple of shows ago and comparing the two. And the question arose- why is Netflix an aggregator, but Disney not? And I think in the context of this integration and modularity, these concepts, these help explain the distinction between the two. Whereas Netflix is more aggregated on the side between distribution and the users and therefore have commoditized suppliers. Disney is more integrated around the content. Is that a fair assessment? Right. And Disney's always sort of attracted users by virtue of their content, whereas Netflix, in some respects, attracted users by virtue of the convenience. You think about how they started, right? And that plays out in a different way where Disney is more towards the supply side. And someone was talking to me about this. I think an interesting analogy is to think about something like retail, where you have something like Amazon, for example, where Amazon's selling point is convenience and everything under the sun. And that gets them tons of users that bring suppliers on their platform. And so those suppliers can be at multiple levels. They can be, you know, CPG companies that have, you know, tied detergent on Amazon. They can be, you know, clothing companies, they can be whatever it might be, or it could be on the supplier level where they're coming on under the Amazon basics brand or the various, the huge number of private labels Amazon's bringing on, or they can come on like there's all sorts of different levels that you can sort of enter on the platform. And you see that with Amazon. So Amazon sells where they sell on there. They sell their own branded devices like echoes or whatever. They sell devices that are private label that you don't necessarily know up front is from Amazon, but you're just looking for a shirt or whatever it might be. They sell brands that they buy 
wholesale and then they sell them back. And also they have the, the merchant platform where all they do is provide the infrastructure, but it's not just infrastructure. They provide the infrastructure and the customers for any third party to go on and sell their goods. And so they're sort of operating on multiple levels, which makes sense given their point of integration is with the customer and sort of the delivery infrastructure. Uh, an alternative would be Apple. Like Apple has retail, but Apple's retail is driven by the product, right? You go into that retail store because you want access to the product. And that doesn't restrict Apple from selling third-party goods, but those third-party goods are sort of subservient to the product and the brand doesn't extend and the mindset and the culture that delivers the sort of products that drive customers, it doesn't really extend horizontally to an Amazon type model. Like Amazon is anything and everything. It's not like the best sort of product, whereas Apple is the best sort of product. And yes, you can also get some other stuff. I would view Disney or you see this in the publishing space, like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times. They are more like the Apple. You are going there to get a specific product and they're constrained in how much they can expand because you start to dilute the value of that brand and your company is just not set up to do that. That's not what you do. That's not your sort of your core competency and what you're good at. Whereas Netflix is more like Amazon. Like you go to Netflix because there's going to be a show you want to watch. And I was just figuring out which show you want to do. You go to Amazon because you want to buy something and you just figure out sort of where to buy it from and where they sit relative to consumers, where they sit relative to customers, where they sit relative to their own internal development are just different spots in that value chain. And that's not to say it's not valuable to be an Apple. Obviously it is. It's not valuable to be a Disney or a New York Times, but those are direct to consumer businesses Whereas Netflix and Amazon are aggregators. And I think there, there is a distinction there. Yeah. And the distinction sounds like it's whether you start more on the demand or the supply side. And if you start on the supply side with a differentiated product, it's very difficult to then get to the point of being an aggregator. But if you start on the demand side, then by virtue of that, it's not necessarily, I mean, there is differentiated content that Netflix has. And same with Amazon, I'm sure, like the Amazon products, the, the Echo, you can only buy it on amazon.com, but they can take everything else as well. And it's almost like as we're having this conversation that one of these other characteristics of aggregators is convenience. Convenience is a key thing. It's like a feature of an aggregator. And that's actually right. And the other thing you see with aggregators is they sort of lever up to where they are. So Amazon started with books and then they sort of expanded that into the various other categories. Netflix started with DVDs. The key is getting that initial customer base. And then you get that customer base as sort of leverage to go into lots of different places. And I think that is probably what Spotify is hoping to do. They have the big customer base thanks to the fact they started as a music company and now can they take that customer base and lever it into sort of other spots in this respects the fact that Spotify isn't a record label may be a sort of a big benefit to them because they're less constrained they're constrained to that they don't want to like make the labels abandon them but they're not constrained that they have to protect their own music label profits because they don't have music label profits because the music labels are taking all of it and I think that if you want to think about Spotify Everyone wants to compare Spotify to Netflix, and I've articulated many times why they are not. But if they end up being like Netflix, it's not because music was like video. It's because music was like DVDs. And that was a way to sort of build the core base that you were able to sort of leverage into other areas where you have much more power over supply. So it's Spotify, the podcast company. I wasn't expecting that to be the conclusion. The analogy makes complete sense. And you raised a bunch of points where podcasts may not end up being profitable enough or that profitable. Like your point about evergreen content, I think is a really good one. You know, there's a question about is the field sort of so spread out and so fragmented that it actually can't be centralized? Might Apple actually start making a move here? It's not clear that it's going to work, but I do think there is a clarity to the strategy. And again, that's why I'm so glad I waited because I think just Gimlet the fact that it makes obvious sense kind of shows that it's kind of a lame strategy. You know what I mean? Or you're not going to buy your way into a competitive position. What you need to do is you need to induce sort of structural effects and transformative value chains that they accrue to you over time. That's where you really make money, not by just buying exclusive content. That's not a winning strategy. You need those structural forces in your favor. Now, maybe that means buying exclusive content, but like Netflix, you're buying exclusive content from a position of strength where that value to you far exceeds the amount that you have to pay out. Yep. That totally makes sense. 
Cool. Well, now I feel well positioned to write my article today. I have a mixed mind. On one hand, I want to be very consistent with this podcast. But on the other hand, of course, to have some amazing insight come to me as I'm writing and being out of place. It was six to one, half dozen the other. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, it'll be an interesting experiment. <laughs> it will. Very good. Well, I appreciate taking the time. You are about to get on a plane again. We are all about podcasting around plane trips. So I just want to acknowledge the hustle. That is our theme these days is us hustling. So good job by us. Yes, indeed. And maybe speak to you next week. We'll see how things go with the uh, the trip. Yes. So we may or may not be here next week. And also now you know why we're not on Spotify. <laughs> yes, indeed. Sounds good. I will talk to you later. See you, mate. Have a good one. All right. Bye-bye.